mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Hard. Welcome to Talk Hard. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like an icon. Ooh, that's a nice And feeling. I'm feeling like a global icon. Woo-hoo. And in fact, an iconic feminist. Because today's guest is the person that pretty much made me a feminist and I could also credit my mother Judith who has a very similar name to today's guest actually because in the 1980s when I was growing up she was also a feminist and she brought me up as the young gay boy that I was to be a feminist and an ally to women at all times Um, but in art the artist when I was about 12 years old that I read about was today's guest and her work The Dinner Party had this huge impact on my mind and uh, I recently got to finally see it as a kind of pilgrimage in the Brooklyn Museum in New York where it's still is on permanent display and it was cinematic and just even more than I was hoping for it to be and it's incredible after 60 years of making work that's right more than six decades of art making that her work is still just as powerful and impactful and relevant as it as it was at the time she made it and today's guest is also I think at the core of her work incredibly emotionally intelligent and I I, I say that because I don't think everyone is. And actually, when we went to see the new retrospective at the new museum, Mm. I was just blown away by the generosity and the emotional intelligence within every single work. It didn't matter whether it was a giant photograph, a giant painting or sculpture, or the tiniest like embroidered piece of fabric, or or even a tiny little maquette for a sculpture or, or, you know, a small photograph. Everything just had this depth of emotion. And it really does help to engender and create I think, a better world. Anyone seeing that show can't leave that exhibition without being altered in some way. Yes. And also just her depth of knowledge of art history and highlighting the the great women artists of, you know, hundreds of years and how they were just ignored for so long. All we have to say is thank you to her. So we are, this is like, honestly, I'm so emotional. This is such a big deal for us. Um, we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Judy, Judy Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> Hi, Judy. Hi, that was quite an introduction, guys. (laughs) It certainly made me feel welcomed and understood. Well, that's that's all we want. And 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 you said that this is the first podcast you think you've ever done. No, actually, it's the second. 
but I don't usually do podcasts. And the first one I didn't realize I was doing as a podcast because <laughs> it was like, I thought it was a video. It oh. was for the Female Divine Project I did for Dior in Paris with Katie Hessel. Oh, yes. Our dear friend. Yes. We love Katie. Yes, yes. It was the first time I met her and it was before she became like world famous, right? Yeah. Well, we're privileged that we're your second podcast, Judy. So thank you so much. Let's just start off just by saying this the retrospective at the New Museum in New York at the moment, it's on to the 3rd of March 2024, is just beyond. As Rob was saying, it spans your 60-year career. It covers sculpture, painting, installation, drawing, textiles, photography, stained glass, needlework, printmaking, everything. And it, the full floor we will get to, which is just the most generous act that any artist could ever give. How how does that feel? It's quite a big question, but how do you feel about this exhibition being on now? Well, even though my first retrospective was at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, curated by Claudia Schmuckley in 2021, that was the first time viewers had the opportunity to see the range of my career. Because for a lot of a lot of time, I used to walk around going. Will I live long enough to see the body of my art come out from behind the shadow of the dinner party? Because it was like Judy Chicago, the dinner party was all one word. And even though I was gratified by the attention it brought me and even more gratified when I finally achieved my original goal of permanently housing it or having it permanently housed, by the way, it accounts for 20% of the visitorship at wow. the Brooklyn Museum. 100,000 people come every year to see it from around the world, which is exceedingly gratifying. But anyway, Claudia's show was the first time people got to see, like, really the range of my work. And I heard the word remarkable a lot, which was nice. But the next step is what Massimiliano did. And I think the final step in terms of understanding my work will be when the Serpentine Show opens in May. Because what Massimiliano's show has done is that it has allowed people to see the context, the historic context out of which I've worked for decades. And Tom Campbell, who's the director at the De Young Museum at the press preview, made what is probably one of the great understatements of all time when he said, Judy's work has been marginalized in the art world. I'm like, really? <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed. I mean, how about... <laughs> Hello. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, when Massimiliano, Gioni, and I were working on the show, I realized that one of the reasons that that marginalization happened, uh, along with sexism and all the other things that contributed to it, I was so out of step as an artist. I came from the West Coast, you know, but whatever. But the primary reason was that I have worked out of an alternative paradigm for a very long time. Ever since I discovered the unknown history of women's cultural production, 
when I was doing research for the dinner party, I have worked out of that cultural paradigm. You know, there's this idea that our history is universal, but really that's not true. The universal art historical paradigm that we all are educated to know about is basically a patriarchal paradigm. And what we know about women is around the edges of that paradigm. And even now in the art world, as the art world, global art world struggles to figure out how to bring in more diverse voices, they're doing it trying to figure out how to maintain that paradigm. But actually, that paradigm has to be completely up rooted because it is not a human art history paradigm. It is a male-centered art history paradigm. And so the City of Ladies on the fourth floor of the new museum contextualizes my work in the history of five centuries of women's cultural production. And when we were installing it, actually, there are a lot of stories that are very moving about installing it, which if you'll give me a chance, I'll talk about. But when we were installing it, I joked to Massimiliano, I'm like, could I just make up a bed on the fourth floor and move in? Is that a cat? <laughs> oh, my God. That looks exactly like tuxedo. My, my cats what? are called Window and Doorway, and this is Winnie. And for some reason, she is here for your interview. She wants to be present. <laughs> <laughs> She's a Judy Chicago hey. fan. Look, we have the book. We have your, oh. your new museum catalogue and then Winnie. <laughs> Well, Winnie definitely already won my heart. I wish Tuxedo was here so Winnie and Tuxedo oh, could snuggle a lot. It must be relatives. Anyway, because I've carried that paradigm, that alternative art historical paradigm in my head and in my heart for decades. But to see it actually together, and even I who know a lot about art history and women's art history. It's one thing to see a stream of names as in the dinner party. It's quite another thing to see the work by some of the women represented in the dinner party. And also, I had followed Massimiliano Gioni's career for a very long time. Because when I was doing the birth project, I thought there were no images of birth in contemporary art. It was before Frida Kahlo's My Birth image, when she was only seen as Diego Rivera's wife, who also paints. Massimiliano is the first person to do an exhibition on the history of birth in contemporary art, which my husband, photographer Donald Woodman, and I went to Milan to see. It was called The Great Mother. And I realized from him, from that show, that there's another form of erasure other than simply leaving out women. There's also the erasure of subject matter that the patriarchal art 
paradigm does not consider important, like birth, even though birth is obviously a universal human experience, because it turned out that there were images of birth going back into the early 20th century, Dada, early futurism, a lot of those artists dealt with that. It was just mind-boggling. Okay, so now I'm going to bring this up to the New Museum City of Ladies. It was overwhelming to see Hilma of Clint next to Agnes Pelton, next to Georgia O'Keeffe. Actually, I was joking about the George o- about that because George O'Keeffe's Black Iris is in the show. And when I wrote my first book, Through the Flower, my first autobiographical book, I wanted to reproduce that painting, and George O'Keeffe refused me permission. That was Massimiliano's little joke, so he borrowed it from the Met and put it in there. But anyway... You know, George O'Keefe did not want to be identified as a woman artist. And by the time the feminist art movement started, she wasn't able to recognize that there was a whole different approach to her work than what she had experienced as a young woman where, you know, I read the criticism. Her images evolved directly from her womb as if there was neither a brain or a hand involved. So I could understand that she, you know, was reluctant. But anyway, so there I am standing there next to uh, Agnes Pelton, Hilma of Clinton, Georgia O'Keefe. And it's like, I'm sorry, Georgia, you're a girl. It was so clear. I'm sure you saw that, too. But anyway, you know, to see a whole wall on the subject of motherhood to see women in abstraction, to see women in spirituality. In fact, here's another example of how the skewing of art history prevents full understanding of women's work. So when the Hilmoff Clint show was at the Guggenheim, I read, I must have read a hundred articles about Oh, this group of women in Sweden, the group of five. Oh, they're all in, they were all into spirituality. Oh, how quaint. I'm like, really? How about Teresa of Avila? How about uh, Hildegard von Bingen? There is a tradition of centuries of women and spirituality. But because that tradition is not known, her work was looked at as somehow bizarre. And I suppose that comes back to the thing about how my work was looked at as somewhat bizarre. So the City of Ladies contextualizes my work, and it also demonstrates that feminism did not start in the 19th century. Feminism started in the 15th century, with Christine de Pizan's book of the City of Ladies, in which she built a mythical city of 500 great women who, when I did the dinner party, we had to research all over again, which, again, is a statement about the erasure of women's accomplishments. Now, I was saying I wanted to sleep in on the fourth floor, move into the fourth floor, It was because I've carried that history in my heart and my head. 
for a long time and to see it, actually see it, was overwhelming. And what was also overwhelming were some of the stories Massimiliano and I were told. For example, the curator at Columbia University in New York, which has the Florine Stettheimer estate, delivered the painting and said to us, oh my God, I'm so glad you're showing this. It never gets shown. Mm. One of the curators of the Jewish Museum who brought the Charlotte Solomon self-portrait, she's the young artist who was killed at Auschwitz. She said, we're so glad you're showing this work because it never gets shown. Moreover, it was damaged, and the new museum conserves it. Wow. Oh, wow. Brilliant. So it was a living example of the disregard for women's work that continues today. Tuxedo, will you come here so I can show Winnie, <laughs> show you to Winnie? <laughs> so for, for people listening, uh, Massimiliano Gianni is the Associate Director of the New Museum and uh, Director of uh, Curations and Exhibitions there, amazing man, and, and fantastic that you sort of have obviously struck up an incredible friendship and allyship and a total respect for each other's vision. Uh, which is really it must be an amazing thing for an artist to find a curator like that who gets your work and who you can create and like aim for the stars with. This is a funny story. So you know, I had I there was a lot of a lot of interviews and stuff like that. Anyhow, one, on one interview, this woman said to me, "So what are you doing to prepare for the show?" And I knew except for the show at the New Museum, I knew exactly what she was thinking. I there I was in my studio frantically trying to pump out work, and I said to her, "Is that before or after I answer the 13 emails from Massimiliano that came in this morning?" <laughs> and now I find myself, this is unbelievable, working with Massimiliano Gioni and Hans Ulrich Obris at the same time. Powerhouse. The holy right. trinity, isn't it? And high, high, <laughs> yeah, high, high yeah, detailed as well. I love it. You mentioned women's cultural production. Now, what exactly is that for people listening? What does that involve? Art, music, literature. You know, there's work in the New Museum show in the City of Ladies. There's uh, there are fragments of he- Emily Dickinson's handwritten po- poems. There's examples of Ethel Smythe, the British composer, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know about, who was the first woman to, who's also represented on the dinner party table, as is Emily Dickinson. Mm. Ethel Smythe was the first woman to ever create music at an epic level. She wrote operas, uh, and she had so much trouble, so much trouble. Like, even when she could get her works performed, the performers would put tax on her seat. So oh. she, when she sat down, I mean, it's just astonishing. And like me, she wrote about her experiences But she wrote this famous march of women that the suffragettes, the English suffragettes used to sing in prison to keep their spirits up. 
And she was apparently at somebody, a woman's house, a wealthy woman's house who supported the suffragettes in England. And the woman said to her, how can you, with your prodigious talent, waste your time on political music? And she said, Madam, I, more than almost anybody, understands the need for political change. Mm. So that's what I mean about women's unknown cultural production. I mean, how many of your listeners even know who Christine de Pizan was? Or we, Ethel Smythe we, was? We've spoken about um, Christine with an artist called Tai Shani before because she actually based a big installation she did for the Turner Prize on on her work. So we have we have referenced it before, but I agree. I mean, I'm sure many of them don't know. <laughs> but Emily Dickinson's one of my favourite poets ever. And interestingly, when I was 29, I made a pilgrimage, I think, to Manchester in the UK to go and see an exhibition. And of course, it wasn't in London, it was in Manchester, but it was called Angels of Anarchy. And it was women artists and surrealism. And it was looking at people like um, Frida Kahlo, of course, but Lee Miller, Leonora Carrington, um, Francesca Woodman. Robert! Yep. This is Tuxedo. Oh, hello, Tuxedo. <laughs> oh, okay, met. go on. I'm, sorry, sorry. Uh, Francesca sorry. Whitman. It had like loads of artists responding to this idea of surrealism. And for me, growing up as a gay guy in the 80s in the UK, I felt this complete oppression from the kind of uh, cis, straight, white, male culture. And I've heard you describe it as a mass terrorism of toxic masculinity, which I just loved. And it sums up the way I felt growing up. And I remember seeing that exhibition in 2000 and it made me feel like I was at home because female artists were the reason I loved art. And when I walked into the new museum, onto that floor, into the city room, it was honestly, it was like the most religious experience for me. Well, let's just explain that the, the City of Ladies is actually, it acts as like an exhibition within an exhibition. There's yeah. over 80 artists in there. As, as you mentioned, some of the artists, George O'Keefe already and Hilma F. Klimt, but there was Frida Kahlo, Claude Cahoon, Elizabeth Catlett. Uh, Virginia Woolf, and th- th- and it's an amazingly generous space that you have given over to art history or or, or the history of of women that have made a difference, um, and it, it, it is incredibly special. And I, I mean, the, you you obviously are so proud of that, but I think people who come into that room, it's it you're completely blown away. I mean, it's it's so important as the dinner party work is. And it'd be great to really kind of go into those for people that don't know your work and to really understand the importance of that and what it represents. Well, I mean, I know when the Serpentine show opens, there'll be a lot of people who remember the dinner party and and don't know anything else about the rest of my work. And, um, okay, the dinner party is a symbolic history of women in Western civilization that I created between 1974 to 1979. It was a collaboration. I mean, people like to say it was a collaboration of 400 people. I'm like, can you imagine 400 people in a room all agreeing on what colors I should use on the Virginia Wolf plate? Ha, ha. Anyway, no. <laughs> There was a small team of maybe, well, I started by myself. And then three people came to work with me. And by the end, there were 400 people who participated in one way or another, doing research. Or like, 
another English woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman and whose daughter Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein is represented on the dinner party table. And her plight rests on a runner because all the women are identified and something about their lives as conveyed in the runners on the table, open triangular table that rests on a porcelain floor on which are inscribed the names of 999 women grouped in streams underneath each place setting to represent the long history of achievement each woman on the table represents. Okay, so the back of the runner shows Mary Wollstonecraft dying two months after giving birth to Mary from childbed fever. And it's done in one of the kitschiest needle techniques that originated actually in England called stump work. And it was at a time when women had no access to art training. And one of the few ways they could express themselves is through needlework because that was accept, uh, considered acceptable to women, for women to do. Anyway, um, they got their patterns from peddlers who came around because in the Renaissance, there developed this idea that women were incapable of infusing a design with life. Only men could do that, despite the evidence of centuries of women's work in various forms. Anyway, so these patterns, of course, had no reference to scale. And of course, women couldn't get art training. So in the stump work, needleworks, a person would be bigger than a lion, for example. And there were also lots of fruits and vegetables and flowers and stuff like that would adorn, adorn the surface. And there, we had what was called runner mothers, each runner, because a lot of them, which were done by needleworkers, uh, executed from my designs, a lot of them were very complicated. And so one person was kind of in charge of overseeing the work of, in some cases, dozens of needleworkers. So the young woman who was the runner mother, her name was Adrian Weiss. And we had a lot of visitors in the dinner party studio towards the end. And anybody who walked in, Adrian would say, can you crochet? Can you knit? And they'd say, yeah, I can. Well, how would you like to knit uh, like blah, 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 or crochet a piece of fruit? Oh, that would be great. So we would get these envelopes through the mail of little pieces. So when we say 400 people, one of those 400 might have made a little bunch of crocheted grapes that went on the Mary Wollstonecraft runner, okay? However, the issue, more important issue, is collaboration. And I've gone back and forth between working by myself and doing large-scale or small-scale collaborations. Like, I collaborate a lot with my husband, photographer Donald Woodman. That's a small collaboration. And then I collaborated with 150 needleworkers on the birth project. But collaboration, creating art, and actually this is another thing about the patriarchal art historical paradigm. A lot of artists like Damien Hirst, for example, have huge studios 
full of, quote, collaborators. But they're not called collaborators. They're called assistants, right? So the relationship between the dinner party and the city of ladies is pretty obvious. It grows out of my passion to overcome the erasure of women's cultural production. And it's done in, you know, the city of ladies could only be done because of the decades of art historical research in between the dinner party and the city of ladies. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Talking of collaboration, I was really blown away by two collaborations that you had in the New Museum show. One was on the top floor, kind of where you look out over New York, with a dear friend of ours and recent talk art guest, Nadia Tolokodnikova from Pussy Riot. And I, A, I just adore Nadia and I, I love everything she stands for and I'm a complete ally for her. Um, and... Uh, can you talk a bit about how you met her and collaborating with her? And then the other one I want to get into after that is the um, woman's um, house, that whole kind of 1972 uh, incredible project. Do you want to do it chronologically or go backwards in time? <laughs> Whichever way is easier <laughs> for you. <laughs> we can time travel together. <laughs> we can time travel. Um, okay, Woman House grew out of the feminist art program I st- at CalArts, uh, the origins of which were at what is now called Cal State Fresno, but used to be called Fresno State University. Mm-hmm. In 19, at the end of the 1960s, I, by then I was just taking up my study of women's history and getting fed up of what I refer to as male drag, which was trying to make art like a man. Like you have to realize when I was young, the biggest compliment a woman artist could get was your art looks like it was made by a man. Now I would consider that an insult. (laughs) Isn't there like a Carmen Herrera quote about that where she went, she went to see a gallerist, a female gallerist. And she said to the gallerist, this is my work. And the gallerist went, you, you work, work runs rings around all my male artists, but I'm not going to give you a show because you're a woman. And she was like, what? And she said, a woman to a woman said that at the time, that sexism was like, well, like the great patriarchy. Yeah. And this is demonstrated by Robert's opening statement. Like the great theorist bell hooks said, 
you don't have to be a man to be patriarchal and you don't have to be a woman to be a feminist. Wow, yeah. We all grow up with the, in the same paradigm. Mm. So it's not surprising that a woman said that. Okay, so Woman House, because we're running out of time, Woman House grew out of the first feminist art program. I started it at Cal State Fresno. And after a year, I was invited to bring it to what was a very prestigious art school, Cal Arts, which was just starting in Southern California. And I and some of my, quote, Fresno girls, they laugh at me. They're, Judy, we're 70. And I'm like, yeah, but you'll always be girls to me. I mean, anyway, because <laughs> we did this whole thing called Judy Chicago and the California girls, the Fresno girls. It was so, and anyway, so um, it was a radical educational program trying to address the needs of women in art school. And because when I was going through art school, there were a lot of women, but somehow by the time I got into professional practice, they'd all disappeared. And I wanted to try and see if I could help reverse that. I also wanted to try and figure out how to do, how to create a feminist art practice, which it, I always laugh when young women say to me, don't you think it's ghettoizing to be considered a feminist artist? I'm like, there was no such term feminist art when I was growing up. You must be kidding. I helped coin it. No, I don't think Instagram. Anyway, so CalArts wasn't, the new building wasn't finished when we moved to CalArts. And we were meeting in like living rooms and stuff like that. I was team teaching with a, a woman named Miriam, an artist named Miriam Shapiro. And, uh, we had our own art historian, one of the first feminist art historians, Paula Harper, to pick up on my ragtag art history archive I was trying to assemble with my students. And one day when we were meeting, she suggested that we do a house since we had no place. We had no studio space. We had no place to work. So we rented a old derelict mansion and uh, transformed it into one of the first feminist art installations examining the role of domesticity in women's lives. And it turned into a huge su success. 10,000 people visited it in the month it was open. But more importantly, there have been woman house projects all over the world since that time, and of course, it's kind of gone unnoticed in art history, but there's a big archive on Woman House Projects in my art education archive at Penn State. Okay, so that was Woman House. Nadja, quite by chance, on a whole other project I'm slowly working on, I had read Nadja's book, Read and Riot, which is full of post-its because I discovered across geography, culture, and generation, she and I, it's like some of the things she wrote, I could have said. 
And it wasn't that long afterwards that I was invited to meet her at the home of a woman named Carola Jane, who runs a Web3 organization called Dementi in New York. And their goal is to bring, more, well, one of their goals is to bring more women into Web3 because it's a highly male area. And that was something Nadja had started working on. And Carola asked me, I was, we were going to New York. I don't even know how, how Nadja's name came up. She asked me if I'd like to meet her. And I'm like, yes. And of course, I had done this big project with Dior called The Female Divine, where I designed this goddess environment in which Maria Gracia Churi ha- held her 2020 um, couture show. And inside the body of the goddess, I had designed 21 banners, well, 20 banners, half in French, half in English, around the main banner, which asks the question, what if women rule the world? And in fact, the French banners are on display now in Paris at Dior's gallery. Anyhow, I th- oh, I know, Dementi had been trying to get me to do a Web3 project, which I really wasn't interested in. And except then somehow, oh, I know, they suggested recreating, trying to recreate the goddess in like virtual reality. So then this lunch happened with Nadja and I brought photos of the banners and quite spontaneously, I don't actually even remember how we happened to do it. Nadja and I began to ask each other the questions. What if women ruled the world? Would men and women be equal? What if women ruled the world? Would there be equal parenting? What if women ruled the world? Would the earth be protected? And everybody was mesmerized at the lunch. And they're like, this is what we should do. We should do a project around these questions. And like a lot of my projects, it developed a life of its own with me running after it going, wait for me, wait for me. What we ended up doing, we launched it at ICA Miami in relationship to Miami Basel in 2022. John Caldwell, Nadja's partner, set up video booths where people could record their own answers. And this evolved into a huge international collaborative project. Dementi has been doing interviews and videos with people at this point in eight countries where people get to answer the questions. And those are translated into this huge video quilt that you saw at the new museum. I mean, Nadja and I are just thrilled that so many people want to think about the questions on the banner. Somehow, I guess I pose questions that a lot of people are wondering about, especially as we watch this pushback around the world against all the 
positive changes that mm-hmm. have taken place in the last 50 years and the return of autocracy, male autocracy. Have you, have you ever been anxious in your career, Judy? Of course I've been anxious. Didn't you see Autobiography of a Year in the Stairway? No, that's actually I something I wanted to talk about. I that's did, from 93 to 94. I love the, that work. Because oh you've always God. been trailblazing the whole time that with that there is an anxiety which I guess people might not even consider because they see such a a, a powerhouse, you know, what you've achieved. And, and <laughs> that, that anxiety, was there, I mean, even with the exhibition, like 60 years, are there bits that you forgot about that you were reminded of when it was all put together? And you're like, oh, yeah. No, and, actually, and, that's, that's a funny question. Gail Levin, the art historian, wrote my biography, and she used to call me up and she said, she interviewed like 250 people, and she used to call me up and she said, so-and-so told me all about where you went and what you did. Do you remember him? And I'm like, no, but I re- I could tell you what I was working on in my studio then. <laughs> so, no, I haven't really forgotten. I don't think I've forgotten any any work. But you have to understand what a difficult career I've had. And I certainly didn't go around thinking, oh, I'm blazing trails. You know, I just was trying to, like right now I feel very anxious. You want to know why I feel anxious? Yeah. Because here I presumably had this huge success. And so far there have been no tangible results. I have had no sales. I have had no opportunities except from Dior. And... I'm anxious that Donald and I are going to run out of money by the end of the year. So, yes, I've been anxious many times. I was anxious during the Holocaust Project when it was Tuesday and we were going to run out of money on Friday. And I'd say, today's only Tuesday. Maybe something will happen. Just go in your studio and paint. Just trust it. If Judy Chicago could do an art heist, Judy Chicago could have any work of art in the world for herself, what would it be and why? I would try and steal Katarina, I guess, von Hemmesen's self-portrait, the first female self-portrait we know of, painted in 1548. She was a Flemish artist. And the reason I would try and paint that is because it is the first time a woman artist presented herself and said, I am an artist and a woman too, at a time when that was considered impossible. So that level of courage, it's like the courage of that look in Charlotte Solomon's self-portrait in the New Museum City of Ladies. It is the courage it took for women to stand up against and think against what the culture was telling them was true. Okay, next question. So behind you, there's photographs of the Atmosphere series, which has all the kind of um, pyrotechnics and the colour in clouds of smoke. And you also present yourself in an incredibly vibrant, vital, colourful, performative way, which I have always uh, adored about you. So what is your favourite colour and why? Oh, well, really, purple. Really? <laughs> I'm going to wear a purple top, but Donald's wearing a purple sweatshirt. So, And actually, 
I don't know why this happens, but too often we end up wearing the same color and I'm like so embarrassed by that. <laughs> it's because you're psychically in, in sync with each other. Um, you know the Atmosphere series, how did, how did that come about with all this colorful... Oh, come on, you're trying to get in another question you, and I'm Judy. out of time. But the last Man. question is, what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Okay, I would say two pieces of advice when I was very young. One came from an artist named Billy Al Bankston, who was like one of the, quote, Ferris boys, the studs of Southern California. And he told me, Judy, don't ever read reviews. Just count the column inches and see how many photographs there are. And as it turned out, given the bad reviews I've had, that was a really good piece of advice. And the other advice I got was when I went to auto body school from my teacher, Percy Jeffries, who was a show car painter, which a lot of people won't know what that is. It's like car culture and it's like painting cars and doing striping. That's how I learned to airbrush. And he said to me, Judy, there's no such thing as perfection. There is only the illusion of perfection. And I'm going to teach you how to achieve that. Ooh, and did he? He obviously did. Well, I think I've tried to achieve an excellence of craft and image in my work. 100%. Okay, guys. Yeah. Bye. Well, thank you so thank much, you, Judy. <laughs> so for everybody listening, uh, you have to go and check out, if you're in New York, her story at the New Museum, which runs until the 3rd of March 2024. And there is an incredible catalogue that's been published by Fiden and the New Museum, Her Story, which is amazing. Me and Rob have got one of those and we love it. And then upcoming at the Serpentine show. Yeah, the exhibition in London at the Serpentine is Judy Chicago Revelations. And it's going to be in the North Galleries and it runs from the 22nd of May until the 1st of September 2024. And it's going to focus on Judy's drawings, which is so exciting. It's archival and never before seen works including like preparatory studies, notebooks, sketches. It's basically going to the hand of the artist, which yeah. Russell and I are going to be the inner workings. By, yes. Russ. So thank you to everyone at the New Museum for this opportunity and Jessica Silverman Gallery in San Francisco, who represents Judy. Thank you very much, Jessica, for everybody listening. We'll see you very soon and definitely check out yeah. Judy's work. It will change your life. Thanks for okay, listening. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.